0: Good morning, everyone, and to those of you watching online with us right now, good morning, but for those of you who are watching online at any other time, we welcome you. My name is Craig Brown. You don't know me. I happen to be the pastor who's been called to serve alongside all of you in the life of this church, and it's a joy to be with all of you today. This has been a day long in the coming for me and my family, and uh, about five months or so in the works, and... Um, It's a privilege. It's an honor to have this opportunity to be with all of you this morning on this 4th of July weekend. There's much to give thanks for. Thanks for the place in which we live in this nation where we have religious freedom, where we can gather in this place without fear of persecution, and that we can be Christians in the midst of this world. And so we're thankful for that. And I am thankful for so many of the people who've been a part of this process that have led to this moment in time on this first Sunday with me being With you, I'm thankful to the Pacific Northwest Conference and the superintendent of that conference, Michael Fournet, of the Free Methodist Church, for all of his leadership and guidance that has brought us to this moment, along with the rest of the executive staff at the conference. I'm deeply thankful for the chairperson of your leadership team, Diane Berry, who has been uh, just a fantastic leader and a part of a, a wonderful group of people that are a part of that leadership team. I'm so thankful for all of them. I'm thankful for the staff of this church, which I've just barely begun to even know. I I think I know your names. I've I've got that. I hope down. And uh, we've had a good time meeting together a couple of times, planning our worship for this Sunday as we gather together and look forward to spending more time with all of them. I'm thankful for my family uh, present here with us today, my wife Bettina, my daughter Rachel, who's living with us up in Seattle while she's going to graduate school, my uh, best friend of 48 years, Matt, who's sitting next to my wife. You can wave, Matt. Everyone can see him. He's pretty tall, so everyone can see him. There he is. And uh, my son, David, was at the airport to come be here this weekend in San Diego, where he lives. And as he was sitting in the airport ready to get on his flight, he got a text message that he had been exposed to someone who had COVID the day before. He decided to go right back home and stay at home. So, first of all, I give thanks for having a wise son who knew better than to get on an airplane after possibly being exposed. He's not sick as far as we know, but David, I know you're watching right now, so good morning to you, we miss you, wish you were here. With all that said, let's pray again together. God, we ask that as we begin this new season and this new moment in the life of our church, that your Holy Spirit would come now, fill us, prepare us, And anoint us for this journey ahead. May that which is shared this day in the message, in song, in communion and prayer, magnify you and your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're starting a new series of messages for this summer called Waymakers, Following the God of Promise. Now, you may have noticed that there's only one worship experience during the summer here at First Free, and the reason we're having one worship experience is that it's been a kind of a tradition, I would say, on and off over the years to have just a single gathering during the summer. So our leadership team voted uh, several weeks ago to have one worship experience during this summer season. So rest assured that as different as today may look, in September, we're going right back to the schedule that you have known all along the spirited traditional service, the bridge modern contemporary service happening on uh, each and every uh, Sunday. So this is just for the summer. Say that with me. Just for the summer. All right. So we're going to enjoy this time together just for the summer. So we decided that what we do during the summer is something that's not like what we normally do at all. And that's not because any of us are... Trying to convince you that this is a better way to have a worship service. It's just for the summer. See, you're catching on. You're pretty good at this, aren't you? All right. So during the summer, this series in Waymakers is based on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And we're going to be reading the Beatitudes every single Sunday. Every week, we're going to be hearing the same passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 to 12, and we'll have it read in just a moment. We're also going to hear a second passage of Scripture every week that won't be read on video. It'll be read live here in this room, and for those of you watching online, you'll see it here happening in the sanctuary. And that second passage of Scripture is a story from the Bible that illustrates how that particular beatitude comes to life. So a beatitude every week, A biblical story that will help it come to life. And then the last part of the sermon every week will be about how we apply that in our own lives. What are our takeaways every week to learn how to apply that principle in our life? But why do we call it Waymakers? So have you ever walked into a building and been lost? There's like no signs anywhere. You don't know where you're supposed to go. It's kind of confusing We've all had that experience at one point or another in our lives. Those signs that are put up that are designed to give you some sense of direction and where you're going to go, those are called way-making signs. The signs that you need to make your way from point A to point B. And that's what the Beatitudes are. They're signs for us to go from point A to point B. So when we have those moments, when we're disoriented, when we're a little confused, when we're not sure which way is up, Waymaking helps us find a way. And so I don't know about you, but at least for me, I've been a little disoriented lately, have you? Between pandemic and pastoral transitions, between all of the polarization that's going on within our world and within our nation, even we recognize on the July 4th weekend, a weekend that should pull us together as Americans, we're more deeply divided than ever. We're spinning with disorientation and confusion. All the more reason to look for these signs from God that can help point the way that keep us grounded in who we are in Jesus Christ. So this week, we're going to hear the Beatitudes read on video. So here's Kendra. Let's show the video.
1: Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountain. He sat down and his disciples came to him. He taught them, saying... Happy are the people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are the people who grieve because they will be made glad. Happy are the people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. Happy are the people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they will be fed until they are full. Happy are the people who show mercy because they will receive mercy. Happy are the people who have pure hearts because they will see God. Happier are the people who make peace, because they will be called God's children. Happier are the people whose lives are harassed, because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happier are you when people insult you and harass you, and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you, all because of me. Be full of joy and be glad, because you have a great reward in heaven. In the same way, people harass the prophets who came before you.
0: The beatitude we're looking at that maybe you heard Kendra read. We'll work on that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will they will inherit the kingdom of heaven, or they shall see the kingdom of heaven. Either one works. This particular beatitude is rich in its meaning. And so each one of these beatitudes follows a very familiar formula. The first part of it, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is simply a statement of reality. I want you to notice the verb tense. It doesn't say blessed will be the poor in spirit or blessed have been the poor in spirit. What's the verb tense, everyone? Present. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a state of being. That's the first half of the beatitude. The other half of the beatitude is the promise or the fulfillment They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is a strange way for Jesus to start the Sermon on the Mount with a statement like this. In the world in which Jesus lives, the Jewish world of the first century, to be blessed meant that you had lots of stuff, you had lots of children, you had gainful employment that you had a degree of wealth, that you had a home to live in. These were all marks of blessing, they believed. And the inverse was also true. If you were sick, if you were infirmed, if you were living in poverty, if you were blind, if you were unable to walk, that meant not only were you not blessed, but that God was punishing either you, your parents, your parents' parents, back to the seventh generation. You hear this in the gospel sometimes when Jesus comes across a person who needs healing. Sometimes the crowd or the disciples will say, who sinned that caused this person to be blank? Fill in the blank. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, everyone who has wealth, who has power, who has status, they're offended. But everyone who's poor, who's living on the margins, people who are outcasts, they immediately lean in to what Jesus is saying. He's taking their whole world and turning it upside down on all of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that word for blessing is difficult to translate in the New Testament because that word blessing uh, means a lot in its original Jewish or Hebrew form, but it's really hard to get it into the language of the New Testament, which is Greek. It literally means in Greek, good fortune now. Sounds like a bad fortune cookie, doesn't it? Good fortune now was the best way to translate this into Greek when the Gospel of Matthew is written. So the notion here is that good happens now to those who are poor in spirit. But is poor in spirit just poverty the way we normally think about it? Yes, it is. But it's much more than that. Being poor in spirit is any form of being impoverished, any form of lacking, any form of missing something or not having something. And I'm not necessarily talking about material possessions. I'm talking about relationships, experiences, other ways of life that we don't know, other cultures that exist that we're not acquainted or familiar with. Being poor in spirit has to do with being in the posture of need it has to do with being in the posture of need and so i have a question i'd like to ask you this morning and it's this how is lacking needing or hoping a posture of promise how is lacking needing or hoping a posture of promise something for you to reflect on this morning, but it's also something for you to reflect on during this week. Because typically when we find ourselves in this condition of needing, hoping, or lacking, our first response to that is to get out of it. To get out of the position of lacking. To get out of the position of needing. To get out of the position of just hoping. So how might that question uncover realities about our life this week. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now we mentioned that we're going to talk about how this principle is lived out in the context of a particular character from the Bible. And the character from the Bible that we're going to look at today is the Apostle Paul and how he embodied this beatitude in his own life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So Marianne, I'm going to invite you to come forward at this time. She's going to read a passage of scripture to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 to 10, in which the apostle Paul describes how he lived out this particular beatitude.
2: So, as pastor said, today's scripture reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 10 and it's in, on page 1415 in the Pew Bible, the Common English Bible. It is Paul's visions and revelations from the Lord. Here is the word. It is necessary to brag, not that it does any good. I'll move on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. I don't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise and that he heard unspeakable words that were things no one is allowed to repeat. I don't know whether it was in the body. Or apart from the body. God knows. I want to brag about this man, but I won't brag about myself, except to brag about my weaknesses. If I did want to brag, I wouldn't make a fool of myself because I'd tell the truth. I'm holding back from bragging so that no one will give me any more credit than what anyone sees or hears about me. I was given a thorn in my body because of the outstanding revelations I've received so that I wouldn't be conceited. It's a messenger from Satan sent to torment me so I wouldn't be conceited. I pleaded with the Lord three times for it to leave me alone. He said to me, My grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. So I'll gladly spend my time bragging about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. Therefore I'm all right with weaknesses insults disasters harassments and stressful situations for the sake of Christ because when I'm weak I I'm strong This is
0: Thank you Second Corinthians is a fascinating piece of literature in the New Testament, and Paul's writing about himself. It's a little confusing when we pick it up, because if you noticed when you heard Marianne read the text, Paul's talking about himself in the third person. He says, I know a man who XYZ happened to. And he writes in the third person as part of a little bit of a, it's, it's a literary tool where he's trying, in a sense, to create some distance between himself and the story, So instead of writing it in the first person, I am the man or I was, you know, this happened to me, he writes about it in the third person, talking about the man as if he's somebody else, but it is him. So Paul says, I have all these reasons I could brag. I have all these reasons I could lift myself up as um, a leader within the community. He could talk about his education, his pedigree, he could talk about his experience, the fruitfulness of his ministry. He might not talk as much about the fact that the first Christian martyr was murdered by him. He may not speak of that too much. But what I'm getting at is simply this. Is that if there was anyone in that particular context who had a legitimate reason to brag about who they were, it would have been him. And so instead of bragging about all of that, and I'm not sure if it's a humble brag when you say, I'm not going to brag about myself, I'm not sure how to file that, we'll just let that sit there for another day. Like, I'm not going to tell you how awesome I am. That's not right. So you see, Paul is trying to help us understand the truth. Instead of talking about how great he is and how awesome he is, he says, I'm going to talk to you about my weakness. I have a thorn in the flesh, he says. The thorn in the flesh is one of the great enigmas of the New Testament because we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Whether he had a medical condition, whether he had something else wrong." ...that inflicted pain on him in some form. And it was a constant reminder to him... ...that he was a person in need. And so Paul talks about his weakness in a way that embraces it. Because he wants those in Corinth to understand... ...that in his weakness, God is made strong. So let me represent it with some detailed graphics. If Paul thinks he's this awesome... This is the detailed graphic, by the way. Then that leaves about this much room for God to be awesome. But if Paul thinks he's this awesome, now there's lots of room for God to be awesome. Paul says, the power of God is made perfect in my weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the idea of the beatitude that Paul's living out in our midst, that by holding himself not in a poor estimation, but in an accurate estimation, he leaves all sorts of room and space for God to do amazing things in him and through him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why does Paul talk about how power is made perfect in weakness? Well, there's four things I'll put up on the screen so you can follow along. The first thing he says is that grace is sufficient. Grace is sufficient. You know what? Sufficient. Another way to translate that or to say that is that it's enough. That God's grace is enough. He doesn't say my experience is enough. He doesn't say my skill is enough. He doesn't say his fruitfulness is enough. What's he say? Grace is enough. It's sufficient. So that which God supplies is enough. No more is necessary because that's enough. One of the struggles we face as human beings within the day and age in which we live is that especially for those of us who grow up in situations and environments where we enjoy a certain amount of privilege is that we are told that the goal of our life is to be self-sufficient. And what does the gospel tell us? That there is no sufficiency outside of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That no matter how hot and awesome I am, it's not enough. Something else has to be there. And that's when the greatness of God has to show up. The second thing Paul tells us is that it's for that reason that power is made perfect in weakness. So all of Paul's weakness... That gives God lots of space to fill, right? Whereas if he thinks he's so awesome, he kind of starts to edge God out of the equation that the Holy Spirit doesn't have any room to work because apparently he's so awesome. Paul wants us to understand something, that God's power finds its breathing room in weakness, in calamity, in confusion, in disorientation, even in pain. Here's what God finds the space in which to work in our life. Paul III says that he delights in his hardships. Do you understand now why he says that? Because every time he's in a hardship, what he sees is an opportunity for God to do something awesome. Now, sometimes God shows up and does something awesome, and sometimes not. There were some times that the Apostle Paul got bitten by a snake, and he was healed. There are other times that he goes into a town and he gets stoned and he barely escapes with his life. Regardless, he leaves the space for God to do something awesome. And that's how we get to number four. These are moments for God's greatness. So here's a second question I'll ask you this week. we will put it up on the screen. Why do we try so hard to get out of hardships? Why do we try so hard to get out of hardships? And what might we miss in doing so? Why do we try so hard to get out of hardships? Well, quickly, what does this mean for us in our lives today? How is this text alive for us like it was for Paul, like it was for Jesus as he preached and proclaimed it? Well, if you haven't picked up on it here is number one. The number one takeaway for us is that being awesome is a problem for us. Being awesome is a problem for us. In our narrative of self-sufficiency, in the way in which we live our lives, as independent people, in the myth of somehow thinking that we possess everything we need to live life, we have bought into a lie. Now, this isn't necessarily the anti-self-esteem sermon. What this is is about helping us develop a keen awareness of who we are and who we are in relationship to God and understanding ourselves appropriately. Being awesome is a problem for us. I had to explain to me years ago that it's better to be humble than to be humbled. True? Does anyone like being humbled? No, no one likes that. So it's better to start off in that posture of humility. Jesus tells a parable about this. You might remember in the Gospels, he says, when you go to a dinner party, don't sit at the seat of honor. What's he say? Go sit at the worst seat in the house. And then if the host comes to you and elevates you to a higher position, that's good for you. But if you sit at the seat of honor and you find out that you're sitting in the wrong seat, that's not a good thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So second, weakness is authentic only when we own it. So we like a good story like Paul, don't we? This radical conversion story. He was a persecutor of the church. He turned into this great Christian leader and theologian. Everybody likes that story. Same way, we like to hear testimonies from people who've had a really hard and difficult life and God intervened and saved them and changed their whole life. And I'm not necessarily discounting that in any way. But for a lot of us, that's not our narrative, is it? So I can't point on my body to all the tattoos I've got because I have history. I can't tell you about the addiction problems I had other than the obvious one that I probably should lose some weight and do a little more cardio. You see, my friends, what we need to understand is that weakness is authentic only when we own it. If we're found in weakness and we deny it, ignore it, and reject it, that's how therapists make a living. And rightly so, because we're living in rejection of who we really are and who we really can be in Jesus Christ. Number three, poverty comes by accident and other times by intent. You probably know people that back in 2008 and 2009 they lost their jobs when we had the Great Recession. You probably know people whose businesses went bankrupt. Restaurants that closed. Those are accidents. You also know other people that received terrible diagnoses of a medical condition. You probably know people who've experienced a sudden and unexpected death because of COVID or for some other reason. Those are impoverishing experiences, aren't they? Aren't those experiences that make us sense our poverty all of a sudden, what we're missing, what we're lacking, what's been taken from us. It triggers a deep response into us that cries out and says, I need help. Is there any reason why that the presence of God is much more real to us in moments of hardship? Because in those moments, we don't think we're that awesome, do we? What we know is, I need help. I need you, God. God. And thus, God is present when there's room for God to be present. And sometimes we embrace poverty by intent. Try doing something you've never done before. I was at Home Depot. What was it, Rachel, two days ago? And someone was pushing a grocery cart by, and the only line that didn't have a line was the self-checkout. The person had never used the self-checkout before and so grumbled about having to wait in line because they didn't want to use the self-checkout. It can be that easy, friends. Try something you've never tried before. Go somewhere you've never been before. Be exposed to a culture you've never been around before. Go back to school. Learn something you never knew before. Pick up a book and read something that you don't know anything about. There's a reason why it's been an ancient part of the Christian tradition for some people to take a vow of poverty. Does it make sense now why they do that? That they step into impoverishment because they realize that's the place where God might speak to them in a new and a powerful way. And last, poverty of mind, body, soul, or spirit opens a promise. This is the good stuff. You notice all sermon long I've only talked about the first half of the beatitude. I haven't talked about the second one at all. The promise here is that you'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. So what could be better than that? Does anyone have something better than that? What could be better than the kingdom of heaven and inheriting it? Jesus says that if we're poor in spirit, that's the promise that's ours. So as we begin this journey together, not only over these 10 weeks, but as we begin the journey of me being with you and you being with me, here's some truth. I don't know you, and you don't know me. We don't know each other. How about we start with that? I don't know how God is going to grow and multiply this church. Let's start with that. All I know is that if we're willing to embrace just for a moment what we're lacking, God will fill in the gap. That I do know. And so let's start at the beginning, shall we? And that's how we start. I don't know you. You don't know me. This is going to work. This is going to work. And it's not going to work because you're awesome. And it's not going to work because I'm awesome. It's going to work because God is awesome. Can I get an amen? Let's pray.